comforts is, is joy to the world. It was written in the 1700s, actually almost exactly um, 400 years before today by Isaac Watts. He was 15 years old, and he was old enough to go ahead and start complaining about all the old hymns in church. And he didn't like them. And so finally someone said to him, if you don't like them, why don't you write something on your own? And Joy to the World was the first hymn he wrote. And we still sing it today. We sang it the first song this morning. But I don't know if you noticed some odd wording in this song. Look at the script. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. I mean, I want to correct it. I want to say the Lord has come. Because we, we don't use that word that way. I mean, if you're having a bunch of folks over for Christmas, you know, and you're sitting down for Christmas dinner, and someone says, you know, grandmother is come. You'd go, do you go to school, child? I mean, you learn anything in English? You don't say grandmother is come. You say grandmother has come. But in Isaac Watts' day, that was a common use of the word is. Probably continued that way to about 1900. And really, it communicates much more than our language has come. The word is in ancient or in old English language it literally meant this. The Lord has come and he's still here. The Lord is come. And guys, that's what our message series is all about. It's about the Advent season of Jesus coming. And as we pointed out last Sunday, Advent is a celebration of not simply the, the first coming of Jesus, but also a celebration of the second coming. He is come. And what we find ourselves now is living in this in-between time between that first and second coming. And it's not always that easy because we've received some things and we don't have everything. The, the way I'd put it this morning is now and later, okay? There's some things we know now, and there are other things that are coming later. In fact, the Bible uses that in some really unique ways, now and later. For instance, our adoption. The Bible says that we are adopted, and then about a chapter later, Paul says we will be adopted. Is there a contradiction there? Adopted and will be adopted? The Bible says about our salvation, we are saved, but it also says we will be saved. What's happening there? You see, that's the reality that we live in. Many of you who have adopted children, you understand this. You may go and get your child and bring them home, and the adoption is still not finalized. And so you drive around with this important piece of paper that's notarized that says, this child I'm adopting. But it may be a month or two later in this in-between time when finally the adoption is finalized. And when it comes to our salvation, we are adopted. That is our status before God. But not until Jesus comes back will we have our full inheritance. And the word saved is used the same way. In fact, uh, a scholar named John Stott says, in between being saved and Receiving full salvation, he says we actually are half saved. Now, when I read that, I don't like that. That, that doesn't sound right. We're half saved. It almost sounds like insecurity. But the truth is, we are half saved in the sense as we have received a taste of our salvation, but not until the second coming will we receive our full salvation. 
And so many people, if you read commentaries, they always put it this way. We live in this in-between time where it's already and not yet. We, we already have a part of it, but we don't yet have the whole thing. And my friends, that's a pretty hard place to live often. We, we talked about it last week in that, that Christmas teaser gift when your children are all itchy to get a gift and you can't quite wait till Christmas. And so you say, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, you can open this gift. And what you're going to do when you open this gift is it's going to be a teaser to say, you know what, you've got this great thing, but a whole lot more is coming tomorrow. Parents, children have told me they thought that was a really good idea. You might want to remember that, all right? It's that teaser gift, and that's what God has done for us. So today we're going to look at what God is doing in between the first and second coming of Jesus. We're going to go to Romans chapter 8. If you want to open your Bible, get on your phone. And um, I love this because Paul is obviously living in the real world. He's not living in some spiritualized, everything's great, everything's falling in place in my life. He said, right now, we live in between. And so let's look at what he says that's like. Verse 18, Romans chapter 8. He's talking about suffering, and yet his theme is our theme. It's hope. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, what's he saying? Is, guys, when the fall of man happened, not only did we get messed up, but the whole creation got messed up. Not by its own decision, but by our decision and the will of God. Then he says, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning. That's a key word here. There's a lot of groaning in this passage. It's been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Now, did you notice that? There's a lot of groaning going on in this passage. What, what's a groan? A, a, a groan is, a, is a, an almost nonverbal, primal expression of, of, of pain, of frustration. It's, it's raw emotion. Maybe you've uh, watched some Middle Eastern funerals and the way they groan. Maybe you've even been to a funeral here in America. I can remember one vividly here in this very place where a child had died at nine years old. And through the whole service, the mother, the only word you could use is she groaned. And, And so the Bible says there's a lot of groaning going on. First of all, it says creation groans. You know, this is what everybody's feeling Creation groans. You see, the, the fall of man affected the earth. And, and, and Paul is so vivid in his language here, is he takes personal terms to describe matter. Creation groans. The planet 
is hurting. He said it's, it's like, and I don't know how Paul understands this, but he talks about it a lot in his letters. It's like the pain of childbirth for a woman. But this is before there was any blocks and any pain medicine. He said that creation is going through this pain. Why? Because, guys, we lived in a messed up globe. This is not the way it was created. We have tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes. And have you seen the pictures even this week of the, the wildfires in Southern California? You see those people riding down the interstate, and it appears they're riding through the middle of hell? I mean, it's just incredible. My friends, that's not the world was, the way the world was created to be. And because of how messed up it is, it groans, and yet it hopes. Because one day, when Jesus comes back, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and he'll restore everything for the way it's supposed to be. So creation groans. Guess what? The believers groan. He says, we've experienced the first fruits. What's the first fruits? It means just the first of the harvest. We got a little bit of the harvest, but we don't have the whole thing. And so we're a little messed up. You ever just say, you know, and you don't, maybe you don't even, you don't even know how to express it. You don't know why you feel this way. You just say, I just feel a little bit off. He says, we, we all feel a little bit off. Our bodies are off. Our bodies were not meant to decay. They weren't meant to be sick. They weren't meant to, for, our, our, for us to die. And yet we hope there's this day when Jesus comes back when, guys, you're not going to turn into some kind of weird floating spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Your body is going to be completely restored to what it ought to be. We will become perfect inside and out. And here's the cool thing. Not only is the creation grown and we grown, but also the Holy Spirit comes in this picture and the Holy Spirit groans with us. It's amazing that, that God who sent this comforter, he comes with us and when we groan and we hurt, he hurts with us. The Holy Spirit does the same thing in your life today that Jesus did in the life of Mary and Martha when he came to the tomb of Lazarus. He knows Lazarus is going to resurrect, but he feels their inner pains. And really the, the word used there for what Jesus felt in John chapter 11 was that Jesus literally groaned and he wept. And, and today, as you go through hard times, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing. So let's go a little further now. That's what life feels like today. My, my question for right now is this, what is God doing? What in the world is God doing? I'm, I'm living in this tension between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus in a fallen body, in a fallen world. What's God up to? And Paul tells us very clearly. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the, inner, the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And then here's our famous verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What is God doing now? As you and I live in this difficult in-between time, you need to catch this today. First of all, there are spirit-assisted prayers. Here's the great thing you need to know as a Christian, is you don't pray by yourself. You have an assistant to pray with you, and that's the Holy Spirit. Now, the general principle Paul is giving is that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. When Jesus left, he said, you guys are going to be better off because I'm going to leave the, Holy, leave the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says all kind of, the Holy Spirit strengthens us, helps us overcome sin, helps us in our weaknesses. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little, how does all that happen? It, it, it sometimes feels a little nebulous to me. Maybe that's my problem. That's why I really love this passage. Because this gives me one very specific thing I absolutely know the Holy Spirit's doing. He is interceding in my prayers. When I'm groaning and I don't have words to express it, when, when I'm struggling because I don't know if A or B or C or D are the will of God, and so I don't know what to ask for, the promise here is that the Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit sorts out our confusion, brings it under the will of God, and offers our prayer to God for us. Incredible. Number two, what's God doing there are divinely orchestrated circumstances. Now, Romans 8.28 is one of the most misused verses in all the Bible. We, we, we say it glibly like, everything in life is great. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. That, that's nice. But you've got to understand it in the context. In the context, it's not this sweet Christian life where everything just goes good for you. It's, it's actually this life where... You may be struggling to the point that you're just groaning. And the promise of Romans 8, 28, listen very closely, is not that everything in your life is good. It's not. The promise of Romans 8, 28 is that God can take anything in your life and make it good. God can take anything in your life and make something good come out of it. So if you're suffering or you're happy, you know, if you're struggling through life or life's going well, if you blew it and that's caused pain in your life or somebody else blew it and caused pain in your life or the devil messed you up, here's the awesome thing about the God we serve. He can take all of it, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, and he can make it into something wonderful. All things work together, not glib, for good. You know, we, we, we hear these stories so much. I think we had a great illustration of that this morning with the Meredith Foundation. None of us would say today that the death of Meredith was good, but we all can say 22 years later, God has used it for good. And then I was thinking this week, I ate lunch with one of our, our, our college students. He's a baseball player from Faulkner, Jonathan Villa. And I asked Jonathan for permission to share this because I didn't know his story until we sat down and talked. But Jonathan grew up in Mexico. And um, his parents were really hard workers. In fact, they, they worked in another town outside of his hometown. And, and they were never there, he said. And so as a 14-year-old, he took it pretty bad and decided they didn't care for him. And so at 14 years old, he ran away from home, would not interact with his parents for years. And he lived on the streets and he learned, you know, a lot of bad things. He learned all about drugs and started using cocaine. And to support himself, he started selling drugs. 
And yet God was working behind the scenes. In high school, he was such a good baseball player that a school in San Diego allowed him to come across the border and go to school. And then later he went to junior college. He was actually drafted by pro teams, but decided to come instead this fall to Faulkner University. And just a few months ago, he surrendered his life to Jesus and was baptized. Now, he's sharing these things with me, and, and, and really with a lot of shame. It's like, I'm so ashamed of what I did. I, and, and when I said to him, I said, Jonathan, brother, that is the work of Satan. Satan wants you to live in shame and silence about what happened in your life. But here's what God wants to do. God wants to use this for your good and his glory. You don't need to bury this and be shameful about it because God has got the power to take all the mistakes you made, all the hurt you caused, and now he can use it for something good. And so over the last year or two, he's been reconciled with his parents. He's right now in Mexico, and while he's in Mexico over the Christmas vacation, a local church in his hometown has asked him to share his testimony. My friends, that's what God can do with the worst parts of our life. Can you imagine what he can do with the best parts of our life? And so God orchestrates these circumstances. Number three, here's the real goal of God, is Christ-conformed character. God wants to conform our character to that of Christ. He wants us to look like Jesus. Now, let's be honest and go on a little diversion here just for a second. There's a word here that always throws me off, so I don't appreciate this passage the way I ought to. It is that, that word predestined. So let me address that just a second. Because when we see the word predestined, we immediately think of the, ter- the common interpretation in our day of predestination in Calvinism. And I'm trying to be critical or just trying to explain this, okay? Calvinism says that this is how predestination works. Before the world was even created, God was blind to everything that was going to happen. He didn't let himself look forward to what was going to happen. He blinded himself, and God, on his own sovereignty, simply decided who's saved and who's lost. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, save, lost, save, lost, save, lost. And so I sort of react to that because to believe that in my estimation is to deny almost every five or six verses found in the Bible that imply that you have choices to make about your life. And so we see this word and we we, we sort of get tripped up, but I think there's a great explanation here that helps us. Did you notice the order? Who he foreknew, he predestined. Now, Here's the point. God has got the power to look in the, God's not bound by time. Okay? So he's different than us. So God can look in the future and see what's happened. And so God can look in the future and God knows the choices that we're going to make. Because he knows the choices, does that make him make the choices? And some people say it does. But I think we can understand that not to be true in the sense that right now, because of where you lived, you know the past, okay? You can look in my past and you can read my past. Because you know my past, does that mean you chose things for me? No. And because God knows your future doesn't mean he chose them. Well, you say, okay, buddy. Well, then then what is, we can't skirt this word. This is a great Bible word, predestined. Guys, here's the difference. We don't have long enough to talk about this. Here's the difference in, in Calvinism and Arminianism. We all have got to believe there are there is predestination. But here, Calvinism believes predestination happens at the beginning 
and the end. That at the beginning, before anything happens, God predetermines everything that's going to happen. What puts a lot of things on God's shoulder. Every Now, what I believe is God has predestined. But God has not predestined the beginning. God has predestined the end. God is not saying, I'm going to make you become a believer. But what he is saying, everyone who chooses when they're called by the gospel to become a believer is predestined. Here's the context. Catch it. Is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's predestined. He's predestined that right now you're going to be changed to be more like Jesus. And one day you'll see Jesus face to face and you will be just like him. So, yes, there's predestination. But it's not taking away your choice. It's saying that God acknowledges that and that behind the scenes, God is working everything out for you to become like Jesus. Listen to me this morning. There is no one more committed to your spiritual growth than God. And you did something crazy years ago. Most of you had. Crazy years ago, you decided to become a Christian. You decided that you would like to be like Jesus. Right? We're all in on that one? That's why we're here? We want to be like Jesus? That sounds absurd. I know myself too well. Except if you believe this, is that God is going to mold you through circumstances, through the Holy Spirit, through the good in your life, through the bad in your life. He is going to mold you into the image of Jesus. I mean, listen to the way uh, a chapter earlier in Romans puts this. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Does that sound crazy? It does to me. Why do we glory in our sufferings? Why can when you suffer, you go, you know what? This is, this, this is not necessarily a bad thing. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. He's going to take it and make something good come out of it. And the good he's going to make is you being a better person, more like Jesus. One more thing that we know God has established in this in-between time. Number four is undeniable, unconditional love. As he begins to close this out, I want to read verses 31 and 32 from our chapter. What then shall we say in response to these things? Knowing everything God is doing. If God be for us, who can be against us? If you have everything I've taught you this morning from Romans chapter 8, there is no denying that God is for you. You know what? Some days we live in thinking, oh, my God, God's trying to catch me. God's not for me. I mean, God would rather condemn me. No, no, no. God is for you. How do you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt? Verse 32, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul, what is the proof, what is the undeniable proof that God loves me? He gave his son. The cross is the proof that he loves us. It's it's, it's almost like, let's say, a 16-year-old comes to her mama. Mama's been telling them no lately, and they're frustrated with her. And so finally they say, you know, Mom, I don't even know if you love me. (laughs) You can be offended, Mom. You're going to look across that table. You're going to say, I dare you say that. I carried you for nine months. I gave birth to you in great pain. I fed you. I've changed your diapers. I provided for you. Is there any doubt that I love you? What else do I have to do to prove it? 
They'd say, that's absurd for the child to say that. It's even more absurd, something I hear many of us say often. You know what? I'm not really sure if God loves me or not. And, and what God would say is, what in the world do I have to do to prove to you that I love you? What could I do more than giving my son? What could my son do more than dying on that cross for you? You guys, listen to me. I don't understand everything about God. When I read the Bible, I don't even like everything God does. And that's, that's not my prerogative. It doesn't really matter. I don't understand everything about the Bible. I can't answer every question about that. There are a lot of things that are a little confusing to me. But there's one thing that I cannot deny that I build my life on, and you should build your life on, is that God loves me. It's undeniable in view of the cross. And that's why what we're about to do, we're going to go ahead and do it right now, in the middle of this message, we're going to go to the communion tables. Because why we need this so consistently in our lives is that Satan convinces us that we're not loved. And God says, let me remind you what I did. And when you go to the table and you eat of the body and the blood of Jesus, and you remember his sacrifice on the cross, it's undeniable and it's unconditional. You ever had somebody who unconditionally loved you? There's nothing more life-changing. It may be your spouse or maybe a close friend who knows everything about, they, they know the very worst about you. And you think they're going to walk away and they don't walk away. And you go, wow, I'm loved unconditionally. And my friends, you may not feel that from anybody else in the world, but absolutely you can feel it from God. In fact, before we go to the table, let me finish out the chapter from verse 35. Listen closely to these words. Then during communion this morning, I would invite you to meditate and to celebrate about this incredible love that God has for us. Listen to these powerful, powerful words. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That is written, for your sake we are... We face death all day long. We're, we're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And so right now, may you be reminded in the middle of this fallen world with your fallen bodies and difficult lives that one thing you can celebrate and know undeniably, unconditionally is that God loves you. Let's pray together. God, wow, I love this passage. It, it, just, it, just, it just describes life and it describes what you do for us. And God, as we go to the tables in the middle of this message right now, and we take of the bread, we take of your body. And, and, and the cup, the, the blood of Jesus flows into our body. God, may we be reminded of what he did. May it take away any of our questions, does God love us or not? And God, may we be convicted, Father, that you love us. And as Paul would say, you're for us. 
And no matter what life may be throwing at us right now, if God be for us, who can be against us? Help us to meditate on that right now, your unconditionally undeniable love, and help us together to share this and to celebrate it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why can we praise him like we just praised him? Because we know what he's doing right now. And we know what he's going to do later. And so we celebrate today, even though we're in this sort of awkward in-between time. We're we're many days, I'll say to myself or say to someone, everything just, just sort of feels a little off. The truth is, it is. Everything is a little off. The world is. You are. Our bodies are. It's all a little off. But we know later we will experience the fullness of our salvation, the inheritance of our adoption. Mind you, this lady, she's um, buying Christmas cards because she, she had all these people. She wanted to buy gifts, but it, it got too late, and she didn't have enough money, and so she just decided, I'll just go find a beautiful card. So she goes to the store and buys a box of 50 cards, beautiful nativity scene, you know. I mean, she takes them home. She's got to get them in the mail quickly, and so she signs them Merry Christmas and signs her name and, and sends them off. A, a couple months later, she's cleaning out her desk and there was a couple of those cards she didn't use, and so she, she, she finally reads it. She hadn't read the whole card when she sent it, and she read something that was in there that she didn't recognize. It literally said, I sent this little card to say a little gift is on the way. So she's panicky. And guys, that's what I want you to understand this morning about the now and later. God has sent a Christmas message in the incarnation. And his message is not a little gift is on the way. You got that part. His message is a big gift is on the way. Listen to what Romans 8.18, the first verse we read this morning says in the message. There is no comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. So in this tension, in this transition period, it's okay to groan. It's okay to say things are a little bit out of whack. But in the midst of this, you've got to claim that God is working and he is preparing you. Every study says anybody can make it through any tough time as long as they've got a little hope, as long as they believe in the difficult time there's a purpose behind it. So today, as as we meet and we're singing these songs and we're getting ready to celebrate, I know there are people among us that are struggling. And and maybe you don't even know why things don't feel right, or maybe you just don't know what to ask God for. And and the word we've looked at today sounds very real to you. You're, You're groaning. And this morning, I want to give you a place and a time to do that. We don't do this enough in our services. But you you may have nothing you want to write on a card or you want to say. You just need to to bow before God and maybe in silence or just groan or just cry or just bear your heart. 
And so what I want to do during this invitation time is, is to open up these front steps. We used to do this a long time ago. And while we're singing this beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, if you don't feel that, that's okay. Just come on up here. You don't have to say a word to me. You don't have to write anything on a card. Just come and bow before God. You see, guys, don't fool yourselves and go, you know, I don't have to bow. Listen to me, guys. There is a biblical tie between the physical expression of humility and surrender and the inner heart. And I don't know about you, but when I come before God and I literally bow, something happens. So... While we sing in just a moment, if that's who you are, if you're groaning, if you're struggling right now, and you just want to use this time to, to bow around these steps and just be in the presence of God, please do that. If today you're understanding more about the Christian life, and, and you know, you, you've heard people say, well, you become a Christian, everything great happens in your life, and you've not seen that, and honestly, you can tell from what I've read today, that's not biblical. We're still in between time. And you understand today that God is working with you and through you and in you and preparing you for the end. And you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus like so many this past week and be baptized. Well, I invite you to the front row. You see, one, one thing we haven't talked about this morning, the number one reason in the Bible as to why the second coming has not yet happened is found in Second Peter chapter 3. God is holding back of his son coming back because he wants somebody else to be saved. And the very reason Jesus may not have come back is because you've not come to him. And today you can. In your life, you can get a taste of the Holy Spirit and heaven and everything good, and it will be a down payment to say to you, one day everything's going to be perfect. And so today... As we sing this wonderful hymn, if you need to come around this stage or you need to meet me on this front row, don't hold back. Just come before God because we celebrate today. The Lord is come. He's come and he's still here right now. So let's stand together and sing.